Do y'all know what women, ministry, and money have in common? It takes a very brave man to preach a single sermon on all three. That's what. Luke 8 is actually what it has in common, so turn with me there. George Whitfield, the British pastor, said it's a poor sermon that gives no offense. Well, this is going to be a fantastic sermon. Y'all remember the slogan, no animals were hurt in the filming of this? Well, somebody's going to be offended in the making of this sermon. It's not intentional, it's just the subjects. Who can name the five facets from which Luke wrote? We've talked about this. You remember them? Nobody? What are the five things, five facets Luke wrote from? He was a what? Historian, musician, theologian, physician, and disciple maker. So the beauty of Luke and why we picked it to preach through other than it's my favorite gospel and I get to choose is that it is the most comprehensive of all the gospels from a historical and theological viewpoint. So consider this. The birth of Jesus. Luke is only one of two gospel writers who includes it. The parables of Jesus. He includes 27 Matthew and Mark combined have 29, and Luke has 17 that are found nowhere else. We wouldn't have recorded the Good Samaritan, the rich fool, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the dishonest manager, the ten minas. The miracles of Jesus, there's seven nowhere else recorded. In Luke, the widow's son at Nan, we looked at that recently, the bent woman, the ten lepers, and Malchus' ear. And then women in Scripture, between Acts and Luke, Luke records 12 that are nowhere else found in Scripture. And so if you want to know something about ministry, women, and money, Luke is the man. In fact, there's a lot about that threefold subject that we just would not have preserved from the life and teaching of Jesus if it weren't for Luke. And so it's that threefold subject to which we're going to look at this morning. And it's three verses that no other gospel writer includes but Luke. So Luke chapter 8, stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. It's just three verses. Luke writes, Soon afterward he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. The Word of God to the people of God, preached in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You again, as always, that we can hold a copy of it in our hands. Father, thank You that we can gather together and worship You today, and that we can dive into Your Word and feast upon the bread of life today. Father, help each and every one of us to put aside our daily cares and have ears to hear. Father, that we wouldn't just listen, that, Father, we would then go out and obey what you would have us to learn today from this passage. We ask that now in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So three things we're going to look at. The first is ministry. Ministry, and this is verses 1 and the first part of 2. Notice 
believe it's six things, all starting with P, about ministry. First, notice the person. The person of ministry. It says, soon afterward, He, Jesus. We've already seen how Jesus did ministry, so to speak, as we've gone through Luke 4-7, to but it would do us well to kind of get a big picture of that. And Matthew 4-23 sums it up. There'll be a lot of preacher aerobics today. You don't necessarily have to turn to each one of them, but I'll read Matthew 4, 23. It says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus' threefold ministry was teaching, preaching, and healing. And it's exactly what we've seen in Luke. If you look back at Luke 4, 44, it says, And he, Jesus, was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And then in verse 15 of chapter 5, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So preaching, teaching, and healing. So why was that the threefold emphasis of Jesus? Well, it goes back to Genesis 1.27. We are created in what? The image of God. What does that mean to be created in the image of God? To some degree, it means that we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And so it was to the whole man, the amagio dei, the image of God to which Jesus ministered. I have labeled it before mercy and mission. And so consider this. If it were all physical that we were to do as part of ministry and no spiritual, what did Jesus say in Mark 8.36? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit if we give everybody that is without Christ food and the best medication on the planet and they die lost and apart from Jesus Christ, it does absolutely no good. And so Jesus in Luke 5, He said that the reason that He came, 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Is He talking about physical illness? He's talking about spiritual illness. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to what? Repentance. And so in 1910, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so God wants us to know that as far as when it comes to ministry, He is no cosmic vending machine in which you just put in a quarter and you punch a button and you get medicine and health and wealth and food and all of that. But then what if it was spiritual and no physical? Dr. Moore pointed out to us in Old Testament class two weeks ago, he said, you know, it's very difficult to explain to a man when you're in another uh, country witnessing to him about Christ and you hand him a Bible and his son is in the tent next door and dying of starvation and we do nothing to help that child physically. So it's not just spiritual either. Think of Amos 5, 21, 24. What was the, the thing there that Amos was saying? Let love and righteousness flow down. Justice and righteousness. In Luke 6.36, Jesus said, You be merciful even as my Father is merciful. And in the classic passage on it, James, in James 2, said this. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says... Hey, I hope it works out well for you. You ain't got no clothes and you're starving to death. Here's a Bible track. He says, 
If you say that without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so God is concerned with meeting real, physical, tangible needs. Amen? And so God has left us with this same threefold ministry. That's what we try to do when we go to Africa. When we've gone to Ecuador, what have we done? We went to Pisali and we bought them chicken. We bought them food. We took medication. We went in and we showed the love of Christ and where we could told people about that. And so we administered to the whole body. So that's the person. Now look second at the places of ministry. Look at what it says there through cities and villages. Now, if you think of modern-day preaching tours or modern-day Christian concerts, how many of them come to Brighton, Tennessee? Where do they go? The big cities. Jesus gave attention to both. We would say He went from New York City to Nutbush. Well, why is that significant? Have you ever heard folks say, well, why do y'all go to X, Y, and Z, Africa or Ecuador, when there's lots of lost folk here in Tennessee and in America. Well, now you see, half of your statement is truth. But a half-truth is an untruth. Because why are we uh, fine with staying in our little piece of the pie? P-I. 3.14159%. You see, the population in America versus the population in the world is roughly 4%. So we're happy staying in our literal little piece of the pie and saying, that's okay, there's plenty of people that are lost in Tennessee and lost in America, so let's stay here, but let's just ignore the other 96% of the world that's lost and dying and going to hell without Jesus. That is the height of foolishness. And so... The application is still for us today to go to New York City and to go to Nutbush. It's to do it right here in our own backyard and go to the ends of the earth. That's still the command. Look at the priority. Thirdly, it says, soon afterward he went on. Soon after what? Chapter 7. He's healed the centurion's servant, raised the widow's son at Nan, reassured John, forgave the sinful woman. The word went on in the Greek means to basically a continual wandering ministry. Just on and on and on and it's an imperfect tense which means this. And Jesus went on and went on and went on and went on doing ministry day after day after day after day after day. Turn to Colossians 1.29. We would say Jesus worked His fingers to the bone doing ministry. What about Paul? Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The word toil there literally means to work to the point of exhaustion. And the word struggle is the word we get the English word agonize from. To strain every muscle to do ministry. Many since then have done the same. Martin Luther, it was said that he worked so hard many days he would literally just fall into bed. John Wesley rode 60 to 70 miles many days and preached an average of three sermons a day. Moody, somebody asked him, said, do you ever get tired, D.L. Moody? He said, I get tired in the work, but not of the work. And one time, this was his literal prayer when he laid down to go to bed. He said, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. (laughs) Jesus was the perfect balance between work and rest. 
Martha and Mary is in Scripture for more than one reason, brothers and sisters. It's to teach us that you can't be Martha all the time and just doing ministry and ministry and ministry. You know what's going to happen? Your candle's going to burn up. But you can't sit around and be Mary all the time and just sit at the feet of Jesus and do nothing. God calls us to work, to do ministry. And it's still the same today. Alright, next is the people. Look at the people of the ministry. Look at what it says there in verse 1. And the twelve were with Him and also some women. The fact that Jesus had female disciples was basically unheard of. Rabbis just didn't have that. Dr. Morris said the rabbis refused to even teach women and generally assigned them a very inferior place. We'll get more to that in a second. But notice most, who was doing the ministering? Is it Jesus only? He's soon about to send out the 12 in Luke 9 and the 72 in Luke 10. This is Ephesians 4.12 before it was written. This ain't Jesus doing all the work of the ministry and everybody else sitting back and watching. But what goes on in the typical Baptist church is exactly that. I ain't Jesus. I ain't nowhere close. But the pastor does the work of the ministry and everybody else sits back and watches. I mean, y'all call me and Jimmy the ministers. And we're bivocational. We're part-time. I had a lady tell me this week, she said, I don't even think you work. Every time I see you posting something on Facebook, y'all were somewhere and I'm thinking, honey, if you were in my shoes for one day, you'd be exhausted. But there ain't nobody that's part-time and there ain't one person in this church that is a minister. We're all ministers and we're all full-time. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. You say, well, I ain't a minister. Well, then have you not read? Do you know your Bible? Because if you say, I ain't a minister, then you don't know your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. This is your ministry towards the lost. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. Cassie's a minister. Dan's a minister. Marty's a minister. We're all ministers. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Does he say, I am? He says, we. You know what we means in the Greek? We. We, You, me, us. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Y'all heard me say it before. When we go on a mission trip to Africa, well, what are y'all doing? Well, we're ambassadors for a king. Well, that takes them back. Now look at Galatians 6.1. This is your ministry towards the saved. That was towards the lost, to reconcile them to God. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I heard Dr. Rogers preach this, and you know what he said? He said, y'all want to show me how spiritual you are, Mr. and Mrs. Christian? Are you living this out? Because it says if you're spiritual, then you'll be uh, reconciling brothers and sisters. You'll be restoring them. Are you doing that? Or do you say, well, I heard about old Johnny and he's got that and then this going on. 
And then intercession, 1 Timothy 2.1 says that prayers and supplications should be offered for everyone. Every one of us should have a prayer ministry. Again, Dr. Rogers said this, he said, the biggest cult is the cult of the comfortable. We talk about the cult of the Jehovah Witness and the cult of this and the cult of that. He says the biggest cult is the cult of the comfortable. So how's your ministry? If we had to survive at what was done here at Crossway Baptist Church based upon how much effort you're putting forth in doing ministry of this church, how long would the doors be open? Number five, the pattern. Again, it says in the twelve were with him and also some women. You notice Jesus didn't minister in isolation. Y'all heard me say it before in medical school, as scary as it may be to some of y'all, and this is why you probably don't want uh, just anybody doing your surgery because it might be somebody that's doing it for the first time, is that the motto is this, see one, do one, teach one. You see one, you do one, and then you teach one. But you see, that's a great model for the Christian life. You know how I learned to basically go do a mission trip? J.D. taught me and Byron and Missy. And now you know what I'm doing? I'm teaching others. I'm teaching Cassie and Marty and Corky. How has it been with Kevin? Someone taught him and now he's teaching Jimmy and Keith and they're telling about it today. It's still the same pattern today. Finally, the purpose. What subject did Jesus preach on, speak of most? I know we don't normally have responsiveness, but this is some time for responsiveness. What subject did Jesus preach on most? I heard love, heaven. I'm, you know, I'm really disappointed in y'all because you didn't throw out the two that people always say, money and hell. <laughs> What he taught on the most was the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Out of the gates, Jesus says this. Repent and believe. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God, as it says here, that's what he says, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It definitely is good news. Amen? It ain't pop psychology. It ain't have a new you by Friday. You don't need a new you. You need a dead you that's been resurrected through the power of Jesus Christ. And that daily crucifies that old cat named Buffy Cook so that Jesus Christ can live through him and in him. You don't need no new you by Friday. You need a dead you now. And you don't need to be a bad person that's made better. You need to be a dead person that's made alive. The good news actually goes like this. Good news, God created us for His honor and glory. And the bad news is we messed that up. And then the good news is Jesus died for us and rose again. I mean, I've said this before. If I told you to come up here, uh, Jimmy, and come up here and lay down, son, I want to start an IV on you and I'm going to give you some super duper powerful chemo. How many of you think Jimmy's going to come up here and take it? Jimmy's like, I'm about to leave. <laughs> you know why? Because I didn't tell him the bad news. I just told him the good news. I got some chemo that's going to save your life. He's like, dude, there ain't nothing wrong with me. But now if I tell him, Jimmy, you've got 10 
signs that I as a physician can see in your life that you have cancer and you're going to be dead tomorrow. You think you'd come up here and take that chemo? Yes, in a heartbeat because I told him the bad news. We don't do that because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to tell people that they're sinners lost and dying apart from Jesus and going to go spend an eternity in hell. I know that is not nice to hear, but that is the truth. And so let me ask you, are you sharing the Gospel? You know, patients tell me all the time, they say, well, I guess God's got me around here for some reason. Duh! Matthew loves to play when we're in the truck. Lecrae. Tell the world, tell the world, tell the world. I'm going to tell the world. I'm a billboard. I'm going to broadcast it like a radio. What would our county look like if that was every Christian in this county? A billboard for Jesus Christ and a radio for Jesus Christ. You notice Jesus didn't have no lack of audience and you notice where He ain't? He ain't in the church building. He's out in the highways and the hedges which is where we're supposed to be. So when's the last time you shared the gospel? You offended yet? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet because now we've got to go with women and money. <laughs> Alright, second, women. Look at verses 2-3 to three, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So each of these women have been healed of some evil spirit or severe sickness that no doctor could touch. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others. So Luke mentions as part of Jesus' entourage several women first Mary. Mary called Magdalene. Her given name was Mary. Her hometown was Magdala. It's a Galilean town. Her condition was seven demons. That doesn't mean she literally had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven demons, not six or not eight. She had exactly seven. Seven is what? A number of completeness. She was completely, perfectly demonically possessed. Could you imagine a more terrible existence? If you've ever watched any movies like The Conjuring, then you will know how terrible of an existence this must have been. And then her reputation. You talk about, there's probably no other person that Christianity has had such a wild imagination with than Mary Magdalene. One is, she's wrongly believed to be the woman back in 737-50, to 50, the sinful woman that anoints Jesus. But the phrase that Luke uses here is that of someone you're introducing for the first time. Not after you've already told their life story. And then she's wrongly believed to be what? A prostitute. Immoral. There's no evidence in Scripture that demonic possession equaled you were a sinful person or prostitute. And then many of you may know modernly she's wrongly believed to be what? The wife of Jesus and that they had children. I mean, talk about imagination gone wild. Second is Joanna. We know for sure she would have had some money. She had some dough in the bank because her husband was a man of substance, Herod's household manager. He managed the money, the estate. And we know this, she was willing to stick by Jesus through thick and thin. You know what the twelve did? Ran like a bunch of scaredy cats, didn't they? Who was the only man at the cross with Jesus? John. And a lot of them left long before that. The one constant was women. Look at Luke 23.
55 to 56, the women who had come with him from Galilee, that's these ladies, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Why did they stick with Jesus through thick and thin? Because of what Jesus had done in their life and they wanted to be with him no matter what the cost was. Next is Susanna. She's the third woman. All it says is just that, Susanna. There's no other details that are given. Remember what we said two weeks ago, it's better to be least in the kingdom than the greatest anywhere else. It's better to just simply have your name, Susanna, written in the pages of Scripture than to have Susanna in a whole ten-page uh, thesis up in lights or on the silver screen in Hollywood. Amen? And then look at what it says finally. Many others. The fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth woman that Luke mentions is simply what? Many others. They're no names, we would say. Dr. Barclay tells this story. He said an old shoemaker wanted to become a minister, but he just the way to do so never opened up. He had a friend who was a young divinity student, and he got called to his first church, and he asked him a favor, that he would always be allowed to make his shoes that he would then be able to wear into the pulpit, a place that he never could go himself. You know, these women were never ever going to be allowed in a pulpit, were they? But you know what they did? They took care of the Lord because they wanted to know that they had some part in His ministry. They wanted to have some part in saving souls. And so Dr. Barclay says this, he says, it's not always the person in the foreground who's doing the greatest work. There's no gift which cannot be used in the service of Christ. Many of His greatest servants are in the background unseen but essential to the cause. Many others that we don't even know their name but we know that they serve the Lord. And so I want us to note several things we can learn from this. Do you know the Gospels record no woman has ever taken any action against Christ? It's only men. And think about Mary and Joanna. You talk about a contrast between people. A woman that was a lowly reputation, demon-possessed, and then a lady that was of the high court. And that's what Christianity does, is it brings people from all backgrounds and all walks of life to come together and to have one common goal and objective to minister to the Lord. These ladies were the original WMU, weren't they? What did all three of them have in common? Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. They went from the walking dead to the walking healed. They were living, breathing, walking testimonies to who Jesus was. And so I want to ask you, are you and I living, breathing, walking testimonies of who Jesus is and what He's done in our life? We'll get there in just a little couple weeks, but Luke 8, the garrison man, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. How much good will be done if you and I did that same thing? Y'all know the difference between 
men and women? There's a lot, right? Think about this. Women have more imagination than men. They needed to tell men how wonderful they are. <laughs> women have a number of faults. Us men only have two, right? Everything we say and everything we do. <laughs> I had a couple for the women, now some for the men. Men wake up as good looking as they went to bed. Women somehow deteriorate in the night. <laughs> A successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can ever spend, and a successful woman who is one who can find that man. <laughs> Someone said women are crazy, men are stupid, and the main reason women are crazy is because men are stupid. <laughs> women love cats. Men may say they love cats, but when women aren't around, men kick cats. Yeah. <laughs> but pink and blue, we're not wrong, we're just different. But you know what our culture is trying to do day by day by day? Erase every God-given and ordained difference between men and women. And so what we have on one end of the spectrum is that if you stand for biblical differences between men and women, you say that there is only binary sex, men and women, and that is it then you are labeled a dinosaur at best and a misogynistic, patriarchal Baptist who all you want is women barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen to be seen and not heard. Amen? Yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum is militant feminists who say whatever men can do, women can do better. In fact, we don't even need men. And biblical roles, if you say that there are biblical roles for men and women, that is actually hate speech. So what can Jesus teach us today about the role of women in ministry. One, Jesus elevated women above the ministry given the status given them by society. Two, he used and encouraged women in ministry. Luke 8 is a tribute to women. It commends them for their faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. Like I said, the disciples all high-tailed it. And Jesus differentiated the ministry of women from that of men. Notice he did not pick six men and six women to be the twelve. He picked twelve men. And he didn't allow his culture forth to dictate the way in which he used women in ministry. 2 Timothy 2, 11, 12. What did Paul say? I do not allow a woman to teach or have spiritual authority over a man. That would be an adult man. Someone said, we don't honor women by treating them like men. We honor them by dealing with them as special creations of God with a complementary, not a competitive role to play with regard to men. And so what roles can they take on? At some point, maybe I'll give you my three-page teaching on it. But just quickly, a couple questions. Do women have to remain silent in church? Now some people will take that teaching and they will pervert it and say women should be silent in church and never pray. But Paul actually tells several people basically to shut up when they're being disorderly. Those who are speaking in tongues, prophesying in women, not to uh, mention that he says in 1 Corinthians 11.5 every woman who has her head uncovered while praying. So he's allowing for women to pray in church. Can a woman be a pastor? I mean, you talk about a spiritual hot potato in the church. Amen? So here, the reason, again, is the order of the family. Who is the head of the family? The man. 
Who should be the head of the church other than Jesus? The man who was deceived by the serpent. Eve was first, right? And so... This doesn't mean women have no role in the church. I mean, if you took women out of the typical Baptist church, you know what would get done? Nothing. Nothing. The only activity that they are restricted from is teaching or having spiritual authority over adult men. So what roles can they fulfill? Can they be a youth pastor? Yes. Can they be a children's pastor? Yes. Could they potentially be a pastor of missions? Yes, but they cannot be the senior pastor of a church. Alright, that part done and hopefully not too offended. The final thing with, with regards to women, one spirituality or significance to Christ isn't measured by your prominence, power, or position anyway. It's by your heart and devotion to Him. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, who was more spiritual? These women or the twelve? These men are calling down fire on whole villages. They're jockeying for power. Jesus is saying, hey, what were y'all arguing about back there on the road like you didn't know? They're dense as can be when it comes to spiritual things. The women are more sensitive, more devoted, more perceptive. So in one degree, you could even argue the women are more spiritual. Alright, last thing, money. Be sure we can spend some time on this. Look with me there, it says... Verse 3, note first, these women provided for them. We know that there was a common purse that the twelve and Jesus would purchase food from and gifts for the poor, but we don't really know how it was supplied. But here, partly we're told it was by women and out of their love and gratitude for what Christ had done in their life. So two questions to consider. Why didn't Jesus just provide food for them? Y'all ever eaten an MRE? My dad used to bring those back when he'd go two weeks for National Guard. And, you know, I was a goofy kid. I loved them, man. I mean, he hated eating those things for two weeks. And I'm like, yes, Dad's bringing MREs, meals ready to eat. All you got to do is pop the bag and everything's in there, man. They were the greatest thing when you're 10 years old. So why didn't Jesus just have MMEs, Miracle Messiah, you know, Messiah Miracle Meals? Why didn't he just pop out meals? Well, one, it's part of our Lord's humiliation that at times he went hungry. It gave folks opportunity and the privilege to minister to him, and it was an example for later and for us today that God provides for his people. You know how? Through people. Second, is the precedent that they gave money only because it was Jesus and only because he was full-time? Should you support me financially as a church? Or it's only because it was Jesus and only because He was full-time and since I ain't Jesus and I, since I ain't full-time, y'all shouldn't support me financially. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We won't have time to get there, but 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said he was bivocational and he had every right to receive financial support from those that he ministered to. Remember, he was a tent maker. First Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders, that's me, pastor, bishop, let the elders who rule well. There's times I rule well and times I don't know what I'm doing up here. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, I labor in preaching and teaching. You, my wife can tell you. She's tired of 50 books being all over the house. And me going, do you remember seeing that one little yellow sheet of paper that I had some notes on? For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So should you support even a pastor that's bivocational? that's ruling well and feeding you week after week? Yes. Second, notice it says it provide, they provided for them out of their means. You think that was money only? Probably not. You think they enjoyed mending those sandals that it had bare feet in it? After dusty mile after dusty mile, I know Vicky would have been right in front of the line for that one. But you know what it seems to me we spend more time doing in the 21st century? Trying to get out of giving than actually giving. What's one of the greatest arguments in the 21st century church today? The tithe. This is what Dr. Rogers said about it. He said, Abraham commenced it, Jacob continued it, Malachi commanded it, Jesus commended it. Who are you to cancel it? But you know why I think we argue so much over whether it's New Testament biblical or not? Because of our terrible tendency to give God what we got left over and not the first fruits. Again, Dr. Rogers said, you know what the vast majority of us do as Christians? We eat the cake and give God the crumbs. You remember in the days of Malachi what people were doing? They're like, God, we're bringing you a sacrifice. Yes, Lord, we're bringing you the sacrifice. And he said, these things are missing arms and legs and they're blind and they got leprosy all over them. What do you mean you're bringing me a sacrifice? And see, you think that has no application to you whatsoever. And let me show you how it applies to you and the eye. You ain't bringing no three-legged calves down in here for us to sacrifice or got leprosy or blind. But you know what many of you are doing? You're taking out of your pocket the crumbled up $5 bill. I'm saying if you are able to afford it. I'm not saying I'm poor and I can't afford this. The point being, you can afford it. You're bringing in the $5 crumpled up bill that's lame and blind and got leprosy and putting that in the offering plate and the Chris new $100 bill is still in your wallet. Do you see what I'm talking about? What we don't do is give God the first fruits. We give Him the leftovers. We don't argue about the tithe all day long and the cows come home. Why don't we, like these women, give cheerfully, voluntarily, and bountifully do you know that in Exodus 36, Moses had to tell God's people, whoa, stop giving. Don't bring no more money to the church. We don't need any more. I, would, I mean, every pastor in America would fall out if he had to tell, tell his congregation that. One person said this, Dr. Hughes, actually listen to this. Can Jesus rely on you, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, financially? When there's a poor person he wants to bless or a Christian work he seeks to strengthen, does he turn to you? 
When there's monetary need at church, does Jesus even bother asking you to give or is He found it's no use? That you're giving Him your heart, but your wallet and your bank account are off limits. It's a joke told that the pastor hated to beg his church for money, but the account got low, and so he had no choice. He said there's good news and bad news. He said the good news is we've got more than enough money to make it through the next year. He said the bad news is the money's all in y'all's pockets. <laughs> you know why the oldest jokes in the book are about church and money? Because they're true. So what would Jesus have us to learn quickly? One, ministry costs money. You say, well, duh. Yeah, well, duh. Sometimes duh doesn't just go without saying. We can't support pastors in Nicaragua. We can't build clinics and churches in Africa. We can't do disaster relief in Houston and Florida. We can't support the boys' ranch. We can't give things to needy children at Austin P. Elementary. We can't make Crossway run without money. And those who share in the cost of ministry participate as partners in that ministry. You know why y'all are willing to deep in, reach into your pockets and give and a church to be able to meet the budget that y'all been able to meet? Because you understand this principle that we're all really on Team Jesus. And to support or sustain a ministry is to share in the reward. And then it's biblical to be supported in ministry. We talked about that. Supporting the gospel ministry involves the support of many. It's not just to pay the pastor. It's to pay whoever cleans the church, does the treasury, uh, mows the grass, the secretary, youth pastor, children's pastor, associate pastor. And then supporting the gospel ministry involves the mundane. You think these women enjoyed cutting heads of lettuce after heads of lettuce, fixing sandals and all of that? And so we don't want to pay rent. We don't want to spend money on printer ink. We don't want to spend money on paper clips and paper and cups and stuff like that. But you know what, brothers and sisters? It's got to be bought. It's got to be done. And then the final thing, he or she who is faithful in little be faithful in much. You know what the little think about this? This really smacked me between the eyes as far as these women. What do you think was the big thing? It says that they provided for them out of their means. The little thing was the money. And when they were faithful in that little thing, God gave them a big thing. Because you know who was the first person to get to encounter the risen Jesus Christ? Mary Magdalene. You know why I think in part God allowed her that blessing? Because she had been faithful in the little stuff. You see, the money ain't the big stuff. You know why I think God has put me into a position to be able to be your shepherd? Because over 17 years, even when it was difficult and painful to do so, I've been faithful in the little stuff. Not perfectly, by no stretch of the imagination, but by and large, as a rule. In closing, John Camp once said this, he said, if somebody in our family was missing, we would pay whatever was required Will Coley was missing. Do you think our family would pay everything that was required or Matthew Cook? Do you think money would be a concern? Do you think that time would be a concern? 
we would spend every amount of money and every amount of time necessary to find them, wouldn't we? The one who was lost. John Camp said this, he said, only in spiritual search and rescue do we alter these expectations. We want evangelism that does not demand time and church outreach that does not cost money. Jesus has called a few folks to labor full-time in ministry, but these women teach us that He has called each and every one of us to use everything that we have, our gifts, our time, our resources, our opportunities to advance the good news of the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for this time. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, I just pray that You would bless it. That if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus is Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, we thank you as we then get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. Help each and every one of us to remember anew what it cost for us to partake of that, that it cost your Son to be broken, his blood shed, and to die the death that each of us deserved. We ask you to bless this invitation now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, this week... There was in the news a woman, but for an entirely different reason than the women of Luke 8. You may know her name. Her name is Jennifer Lawrence. Ring a bell? And some felt she linked Hurricane Irma to America voting for Trump. But the real quote was this. She said, you know... You're watching these hurricanes now, and it's really hard, especially while promoting this movie, a movie she has entitled Mother, not to feel Mother Nature's rage and wrath. You see, it ain't Mother Nature that's in charge, it's God. But you see, to me, the big point is this, that even a non-believer acknowledges this, that you and I are personally accountable to someone or something. But it ain't Mother Nature, and it's to God the Father who created you. Who created you for His honor and His glory. And what you and I have done in turn is that we have transgressed Him. We are morally wicked people. We have sinned against Him. We have missed the mark. And we have committed iniquity. Committed cosmic treason. Now let me ask you, how's that going to work out for you on Judgment Day? Because the Bible is clear that um, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Amen? And so, there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what you need to do is you need to believe in His finished work on the cross and repent of your sins. For we know that the gospel is spelled out in John 3.16, but listen to then the final. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I pray that you would not leave here today not knowing Jesus and the wrath of God still remaining on you. As we stand and sing, if you do not know Jesus this morning, come receive Him today. Invitation is page 472. <clears throat> I am satisfied with Jesus He has done so much for me He 
He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me?